I am Brahms. And Da Vinci? Yes. How many other names shall we call you? Solomon, Alexander, Lazarus, Methuselah, Merlin, Abramson, a hundred other names you do not know. You were born? In that region of Earth later called Mesopotamia, in the year 3,834 B.C. Bridge to all decks. We have just four more episodes to go on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve on the original series. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. Scott, I feel like I've lived many, many lifetimes as we've made our way through the original series. Steve, you know, you wear your age very, very, very well. We have so much to discuss. And joining us on today's episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are so excited to welcome back, to welcome back for our deep dive discussion of Requiem for Methuselah, an episode that I forgot even existed is how <laughs> how infrequently I have rewatched this episode. But please welcome back. She is a writer and producer. She is a writer and editor at trekmovie.com. She has written about Star Trek for the likes of Star Trek.com, CBS Watch, Biography.com, The Water Cooler, and basically anyone else who will let who will let her write about Star Trek. And she is the co-host of All Access the Star Trek podcast that comes out every Friday morning on trekmovie.com. And if you want the latest and greatest breaking news, of course, analysis on all kinds of Star Trek over the last 56 years, then All Access is your go-to podcast. So be sure to listen to All Access Star Trek on trekmovie.com every single Friday morning. Welcome back, Laurie Ulster. She was joining us previously for day of the dove and now she's back and ready to party <laughs> hello thank you this is no day of the dove this is no day of the dove. <laughs> it's not I, I don't even know if this is a mark of gideon <laughs> so oh, so well, i'm gonna we'll start with that <laughs> i'm gonna start with laurie on this like what has been your take of requiem for methuselah back in the day you know when you were first getting into star trek and and how it has evolved your opinion it has evolved prior to this deep dive conversation. It certainly has. I feel like, you know, when I'm rewatching it now and seeing the difference when I was a kid, I think I filled in all the gaps myself as a kid. Mm. So I was adding my own backstory to make it all make sense. And then as I watched it, and I have watched it from time to time over the years, because um, I actually did like a goofy student film in college with a about an obsessed Star Trek fan named Raina. So no. I definitely had some connection to this one. But as I watched it this time with a more critical eye, I was like, it's it's like three interesting stories trapped inside a really terrible episode. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Uh, Steve, how about you? What was your take then and what's your take now? It's funny. I, I think I mentioned before that like when I was a little kid first watching Star Trek, it was just all Star Trek. I was just it didn't matter, you know, just like all of those Superman comics I had from the 70s. Most of them were bad. And I was excited to read read every single one. And I think this one, I was pretty young when I started going, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know that this feels right to me. And I always kind of went. And, and, and Lori, I think you're, what you said is pretty accurate, which is there are some really interesting ideas that would make interesting episodes of Star Trek. But this is not an interesting episode of Star Trek. <laughs> and in particular, I think 
I don't think this is the worst episode of the original series. Uh, I don't even, I think there's way, several others that are much, much worse than this. But this is the worst Captain Kirk episode by far. That's a great way to put it, Steve. I think you put you hit the nail on the head. Both of you did. Uh, first of all, I think we've seen, as we've been covering the original series in production order, you know, when people diss the the third season, what they're what they're really talking about here is the second half of the third season in production order, because the first half was actually really good. And I would say definitely on a par with the first two seasons. It was the second half where you had episodes that really don't work, like Plato's Stepchildren, like The Mark of Gideon, and certainly certainly like Requiem for Methuselah. But I agree. This is not, to me, this is not the worst episode. But I definitely think that maybe next to The Mark of Gideon, it is the episode that I've seen the least. I cannot remember the last time I watched this episode from start to finish. It it was definitely before I moved out to Los Angeles, and that was back in 1991. So it has been a really, really long time. But from a really young age, Steve, I had the same feeling as you. This episode doesn't feel right to me, and the story hinges hinges on Kirk and his relationship with Raina. And if that doesn't work, the episode doesn't work. But there are... There are several interesting ideas, at least three or more. And one thing I did get out of my rewatch for this was how much, at least in uh, in passing, so to speak, that Requiem for Methuselah resembles Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Forbidden Planet is a film, obviously one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, came out in 1956. And for sure <laughs> influenced Roddenberry when he was putting the pieces together for Star Trek. So as we're approaching the end of the production of the original series, it kind of comes full circle that that there's an episode here that resembles the movie that was a very, very big influence on Star Trek, which itself was inspired by William Shakespeare's The Tempest. You have a recluse living with a beautiful young woman. You have a robot that has a lot of power. Um, but to me... You know, there there had been episodes where Captain Kirk falls in love with a woman and you buy it. You buy really into it for it feels completely organic and natural and you're just totally, totally in. Of course, the best example of that is the Citizen Kane of Star Trek, which is sitting on the edge of forever, in which Edith Keyword doesn't even show up until halfway through the second act. But you still have all this time to like, established that she's Kirk's soulmate. In this case, I didn't buy their relationship at all. And that that's a problem. Like if you, if, uh, you know, the whole episode hinges, you know, hangs on, on that relationship, even though there's this plague raging through the enterprise that you hear about, but never actually see, we'll get into all that. We're going to get into all that. Yeah, I mean, there's such a huge contrast between Edith Keeler, especially, and Raina, and it's so easy to break down why, so I can wait till we get there. But it's so clear as to what they did wrong in this one. And just the biggest thing is that Kirk and Raina don't even actually ever have a conversation about anything. No, they don't. He just, she walks in the room and he's looking at her and like, okay, I guess they're in love, you know? Right. And Uh, then he talks to Flint the whole time and not to her while she's standing next to him. So it's, it's, it is, I would say an especially sexist episode. 
Uh, we'll get into that too. We will yeah. absolutely get into that as well. So the episode was directed by Mary Golden. It was his one and only episode of the original series. Mary Golden was an associate producer on The Twilight Zone, and he had directed other television shows like Wanted Dead or Alive, Bonanza, Batman, and Mission Impossible. Uh, it, it, it breaks my heart to say that I have so many problems with this episode because it's written by one of our favorite Star Trek writers. And of course, that is Jerome Bixby, who wrote Mirror, Mirror. Of course, he wrote Day of the Dove, which Laurie joined us on before. And I hope you listened to that podcast because that was awesome. He co-wrote By Any Other Name with Dorothy Fontana. And he wrote his story outline, which was submitted on September 6, 1968. He revised his story outline on October 2nd, proceeded to a second draft teleplay by November 18th. Then Arthur Singer did his rewrite in late November of 68, and Fred Freiberger did a script polished, his revised final draft on November 26, 1968. Requiem for Methuselah aired on February 14, 1969. It was the 74th episode to air, but it was the 77th. Can't believe we're up to that number, Steve. 77. Yep. Remember we were on like – like like the enemy within it was like episode five and now we're up to this episode 77 uh so it was filmed over seven days went one day over schedule filmed between december 2nd to december 10th 1968 total cost for requiem for methuselah was one hundred eighty-three thousand six hundred and sixty-seven dollars went about five thousand dollars over budget so as you said it was filmed december second through the 10th of 1968 we're almost at the end of 1968 we're moving on to 69 soon which is kind of crazy uh on december 2nd nbc aired a 50 minute special that was taped in burbank and was the most watched special in 1968 some one uh critic described it as the most riveting piece of tv in broadcast history elvis elvis yes the comeback special (laughs) yep well, and this is another music one. On December 6th, the Rolling Stones released an album. Do you know? I, I don't know what your Stones knowledge is. I'm going to say it was Beggar's Banquet. You are two for two, Mr. Mance. Two for two! <laughs> well done. And, of course, that contains the hit Sympathy for the Devil, which is one of the great, great songs of all time. On December 7th, NASA launched the an orbital astronomical observer codenamed Stargazer. And it's interesting to, you know, just read like we're talking today about these incredible telescopes that NASA has launched today. And this is one of the first telescopes to put out absolutely beautiful pictures of the cosmos Uh, on this. This is another music one, which is that on December 8th, Graham Nash left the Hollies to form a new band. And that was Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. That is correct. (laughs) Well, first first of all, so so the Hollies are another underrated 1960s band next to the birds, uh, you know, which had David Crosby, but stargazer going back to, uh, to that name, of course, Laurie can tell us the connection between stargazer and some of the later star Trek shows. Well, that was Picard's ship, man. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's um, stargazer. And, <laughs> and it's of course, come back on star Trek Picard. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And on December 9th, and this is one I've been, I, it, it's funny, I wrote this down 
uh, over a year ago and i was like i have to remember that when we get to the date that this thing happened that i talk about it because it's one of my favorite events that geeky people like ner- like computer geeky people know about but maybe other people don't which is have you ever heard of the mother of all demos the mother of all demos never heard of it Mother All Demos was Douglas Engelbart of Stanford University got up and did a, it was like a Steve Jobs demo before there were Steve Jobs demos. And this is what he demonstrated in 1968 at Stanford. He demonstrated the mouse, hypertext linking, uh, Windows graphics, video conferencing, dynamic uh, linking, revision control, collaborative real-time editors. This is like the modern computer was demonstrated in 1968. This is what would later at Xerox Park be what became what Steve Jobs stole to be the foundation of the Macintosh in the early 80s. I mean, wow. this and this is 15 years before that. The, the Mother of All Demos is like one of the most amazing technological leaps forward of all time. Um, an- another one I wrote down that happened on December 9th, you know, it's funny. A- every, every time I look at what happened those weeks, there's always births and deaths. And I almost never say them because, you know, how many, how many are we going to say? But for whatever reason, this jumped out because I just knew, didn't know this guy was alive this long, which is Enoch Nucky Johnson died at the age of 85. And that's the Steve Buscemi character in Boardwalk Empire. And it just jumped out like, oh, oh this go. guy was still alive. He could have been watching <laughs> Star Trek. Like that just kind of hit me. Sort of hard. And also on December 10th, uh, four railway unions merged to form the United Transportation Union with 280,000 members. And that relates right to today where there's still uh, issues going on and them negotiating their contracts today. And we have possible railroad strikes still in our future. Yes. Shall we get into Requiem for a Dream? Uh, Requiem for Methuselah? Sorry. Requiem for- <laughs> Let me say that again. That's a, to- a nightmare. Honestly, yeah. I, that'd be a more interesting <laughs> piece of cinema to explore. Imagine if we were talking about Requiem for a Dream with, with the Enterprise crew. That would be interesting. <laughs> All right. But that is not, in fact, what we are doing. We are talking about Requiem for Methuselah. And we start hearing about this terrible disease that's hit the Enterprise. Rigelian fever. Three crewmen have died. 23 are sick. The whole Enterprise crew is infected. This seems really, really serious. I, I probably spent a lot of time with this disease in this episode. Absolutely. Right. Well, it sets up that that's what the episode is about. And that's yep. not at all what the episode is about. It's what the episode should be about. I mean, Virgilium fever, so a, a plague. So after we heard about a, a, a botanical plague that is infecting the planet Merrick 2 in uh, the Cloudminders, where they need... This only, the only known antidote, which was the neat zenite consignment. You know, now they need uh, a substance called Ritalin. It's the only substance that can uh, uh, stop the, the Virgilium fever from from spreading. So it's already a similarity to that episode. Uh, but in this one, you know, it's on the Enterprise. It's infecting the Enterprise. Like this is really, really, really serious stuff. And there, there from the beginning, there's just there's a lack of urgency and a lack of suspense in this episode that is it is crippling to this episode like this this should be like high drama like you should be able to we should be seeing some hints that that people are dying like like what if like as as in uh, uh an earlier version of the story we see that sulu passes out on the bridge of the enterprise from the plague now that would have been like high suspense high drama 
Yeah, we should have seen someone on the crew suffering from it. And also, I had to wonder what McCoy was doing down on the planet while this was going on. Like, I felt like he should have really stayed on the ship and maybe sent someone else down. Good point. It's the worst of like all of the sort of why are the stakes so low that I can think of. I mean, like, because they said three people have already died and a whole bunch of other people are sick. Well, that doesn't that means that people could be dying right now. Every second someone could be dying or at least really sick. And I also go like, well, are McCoy, Spock and Kirk infected with this? Right. Like they could be getting sick. Like what? There's just it's entirely disconnected from the actual threat. Exactly. Jim, there's a large deposit baron, two, seven, three, four kilometers away. I got four hours to process that stuff. Otherwise, the epidemic will be irreversible. And he says this line, everyone on board the Enterprise will. And then he doesn't finish the sentence. What is the end of that sentence? Just to be real clear. I was going to say die. Die, right? Yeah. So you... four hours, they're all going to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> At yeah. first, a dance. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> before that, we're going to play some pool. <laughs> right. Um, and it's... we're going to beam down far away from the right talent. We hear it's yeah. far away, but we beam down a, a ways. A Four kilometers away. And then there is the a floating robot, you know, thing, which is the M4. The robot is pissed uh, and the phasers are inoperative and it fires its weapons like right at the feet of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and they jump out of the way. It fires again. They jump out of the way again. Phasers are not working, and then you hear a voice. Do not kill. And then the M4 machine backs away, and there in front of us is a character whose name, as we will learn, is Flint. Flint is played by James Daly. James Daly uh, was a familiar face in those days with shows like the Philco Television Playhouse, Studio One. He was in one of the most memorable episodes of The Twilight Zone called A Stop at Willoughby. He was on The Fugitive, Mission Impossible, Roots, The Next Generation. He was in the original Planet of the Apes movie. And this is interesting. I did not know this, but uh, Jerome Bixby, his original choice to play Flint See, this is what I love about doing this podcast. Do you know, Laurie? No. Oh, Steve, you're going to love this. No, I definitely uh, don't know. Jerome Bixby's, I keep wanting to say Bill Bixby, <laughs> but he's the Hulk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't make him angry. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome Bixby's original choice to play Flint was none other than Carol O'Connor. Oh. Carol oh. O'Connor, Archie Bunker himself. Uh, at least he was uh, two years away from Archie Bunker. He turned it down, but that would have been an interesting choice. But uh, James Daly was an Emmy winner for supporting actor in a drama for the series Eagle in a Cage. He has two um, very famous children also. Yes. Uh, Tyne Daly and... Uh, Tim Daly. Tim Daly, yes. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. You know what? And I think he's totally good in the part. I, yeah, he's I, he's actually great. I mean, now I'm thinking about Carol O'Connor in a tight tights and a cape, which would have been sort of cool. But I think James Daly is what made this episode like it, not work, but st stopped it from becoming the worst. Ever. Close to it. Yes, I agree. And Kirk introduces himself and he goes, I know who you are. And apparently he's been monitoring them. You will leave my planet. Did you say your planet, sir? My retreat from the unpleasantness of life on Earth. And the company of people. So we already know now a little bit about Flint. He's obviously a human from Earth and he's, you know, 
come here to get away. You're trespassing, Captain. We're in need. We'll pay for it, work for it, trade for it. You have nothing I want. And then Kirk switches to threats. Necessary, we'll take it. If you do not leave voluntarily, I have the power to force you to leave or kill you where you stand. That That's an interesting way to, to, to end a teaser. I mean, and for a moment there, the way that Kirk is so, he has his uh, heels dug into the ground, like either you give to me or I'm going to take it. Like, like we need this really bad. For a moment, Laurie and Steve, you really feel the the urgency, like the desperation. Like this is his crew. This is his ship. Uh, and for a moment, you actually felt it, right, Laurie? Well, I did accept that I felt like from the get-go, he was so aggressive right away and it didn't appeal to his humanitarian side at all. He didn't say, listen, I have people dying. They're suffering. We need your help. He was just very angry and aggressive and already coming up against him in, in an uncharacteristic way. Right, right. He was uh, out of character. So I think this episode does a very consistent descent into badness. At this moment, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, like there's stakes are high. There's a conflict here. I don't know what the deal is with this guy where things are getting threatening. We end the teaser. I'm like, okay. Uh, I do agree that Kirk is a little overly aggressive. Um, We come back in act one uh, and Kirk talk about aggressive (laughs) calls up the enterprise. Kirk to enterprise, Mr. Scott. Lock phasers onto our coordinates. And Scotty, having gotten this weird order from his captain, just goes, Aye, Captain, all phasers locked on. Kirk just said, aim your guns at me to kill me. (laughs) And Scotty just goes, okay. Yeah, Um, and well, I know that Scotty would obey him because Scotty's had many weird commands. Just a shift in the tone of his voice would have helped a little. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, when, you know, going back to when Kirk ordered General Order 24 in uh, A Taste of Armageddon, you know, Kirk Kirk has uh, given Scotty really far out orders before. So I think at this point, sure, uh, Scotty could have been like a captain, you're too close, whatever, you know. Uh, but also at this point, Scotty has, has been through the ringer with Kirk many times already. So under the circumstances, the urgency of the situation – uh, that's pro- I, that's why I thought he was just kind of like, ah, all phasers locked. So I agree with you, Scott. I think that it is it is certainly motivatable to say that based on Scotty's experience with Kirk, that that's why he doesn't you know bump at this. But that's not the question to me. The question is, well, which is more dramatic and would make the episode better if Scotty just goes, I captain or if Scotty says, Captain, you're you know, you're you want me to aim the phasers at you. And, and Kirk says, all of our crew is going to die in four hours. I need you yeah. to do this or we won't get the right talent. That's a, like a dramatic, you know, or or looks at Flint and says, I'm willing to sacrifice my own life to save my crew. You know, those things are dramatic. And what happens here is not dramatic. Yeah, I um, agree. And he also should have maybe filled Scott in on what plan B was if he did have to shoot them. Yeah. That and if that it. happens, come down and get the right talent. Right. <laughs> the title, Requiem for Methuselah, actually holds a lot of meaning and gravitas. First of all, Requiem is a title that's used to, for a, a ceremony held in tribute for the dead. But Methuselah, and this is really interesting, and this would have really, if uh, this was more in play in, in a deeper way throughout the episode, but Methuselah was the son of the biblical prophet Enoch and the paternal grandfather to Noah. 
He was the oldest living character in the Bible, and he walked the earth for 969 years. And I felt like, like, what a title, Requiem for Methuselah. Like, like if this was a second season episode at, that Gene Kuhn was producing, I feel like there would have been a whole lot more there. Well, there is a whole lot more there. They just didn't do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if anything happens to us, four deaths. And then my crew comes down and takes that right talent. An interesting test of power. Your enormous forces against mine. Who would win? I think one of the biggest problems with this episode is the character of Flint does not make sense. And I really wish, it's like, I think the idea, and spoiler alert, this guy's been alive for 6,000 years. He's been some of the most famous people <gasps> in history. This is a really, this is a great science fiction idea, you know, that is really, really interesting. And what they decide about his character isn't that great. You know what I mean? He's not nearly as interesting as his backstory as he should, should be. Him. That, that yeah. backstory should should really take the episode to a, a, a much, much greater height than it actually does. Because why doesn't he just go, yeah, here's the right talent. Go ahead. Right. Because uh, he literally could have said that. Here's the right talent. Leave me alone. Don't tell anyone about me. Right, right, right. Get because off they, at this, Because at this point, they don't know that he's Da Vinci and all these other people, you know? I, look, I, if they would have given them the right talent and said, you know, get off my lawn, they would have been like, Look, okay. Kirk has Kirk has you know given a promise before, where he said, "I won't say anything about you." Remember in Metamorphosis. In Metamorphosis, sure. Yeah, he told Cochrane, you know, when Cochrane said, "Don't tell them about me," he says, "Not a word." And uh, by the way, just going to just throw this out there: we are recording this episode on November tenth, twenty twenty two, which is the exact fifty fifth anniversary of when Metamorphosis aired on NBC TV. So I was looking for a way to say that and there you go <laughs> i feel like i should send you a cake <laughs> have you ever seen a victim of Brazilian fever they die in one day the effects are like bubonic plague when he says bubonic plague flint has a reaction and the camera right. pushes in on him and he says constantinople summer 1334 it marched through the streets the sewers it left the city by ox cart by sea to kill half of europe the rats rustling and squealing in the night as they too died the rats wow wow yeah and that's powerful I mean, it is and i felt like this was flint's big moment where we did you know you could tell he's as he's saying it he's saying it as someone who's remembering it yeah and feeling the emotional impact of it and that's probably like his best moment yeah i agree i think it's a totally great moment and super interesting are you a student of history sir i am and I think at this moment, we're like, oh, what's going on with this character? It seemed like he remembered that. Like, what is this is a very interesting guy who is, I think, the episode at this moment is working. You know? Yep. I agree. Yep. You have two hours at the end of which time you will leave with all due gratitude. M4 will gather the right talent which you need. All right. Let me just say this right here. Hang on a second. Okay. He just tried to have them killed with his, yep. with his M4. Says, get off my lawn, get off my planet, or I will kill you where you stand. Now he's like, hey, come on over. Want a drink? I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> well, it, it, and what do you think should happen? Because I, I agree with you 100%. What should happen? Well, uh, it's going to take a couple hours for them to get the right talent and process it. Uh, I, I don't know. What, should I, what do you think should happen? <laughs> they well, should go get need- the right talent. Don't trust this guy. Hey, we'll get the right talent ourselves. 
Yeah, just That's show it where it is. We'll get it and we'll be out of your way. Thanks for thanks a lot. Or there could be some environmental weather reason that only the robot can do it and they need shelter. Sure. Yep. There you go. Right. Well, and the other thing is if so at the moment before when he says get off my planet, was Flint going to let them leave? No, he wasn't. He he had a motive. I mean, we find out towards the end that he well, has a motive for 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 one of them being there anyway. Well, I don't think he has that motive yet, though. I don't think he has that motive till later. And I think at that moment, he would have let them leave. The moment that he brings them inside and they see the paintings and the music and all the other stuff, he can't let them leave. And so that's where the it, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you invite them inside? Because that means he has to kill them. Well, right? here's one thing that might indicate that the, that he had a motive from the beginning, which is when the M4 shows up and has really bad aim and just fires at the ground a lot. Um, (laughs) And then, right. So on purpose, it's not killing them. It could kill them and it's not killing them. Right. And, and he says, I've been monitoring you. I know who you are. So maybe this was his whole plan was to make them think this and then give in as part of his weird plan. Like a guy who's been spending a lot of time, away from people, has a lot of time to think up plans. So maybe that's been part of his agenda the whole time. I, yeah, I spending time away from people. I, I, during the pandemic, pandemic, I came up with so many plans, lots and lots of plans. <laughs> um, I, I, so you're, what you're saying is that the idea of using Kirk to bring Raina's emotions out might be in the very beginning. Yeah. Well, uh, using one of them, possibly. not knowing like, maybe which one from the get go, but yeah. If, I, I mean, if he invited them back to his place, and and I agree with your points on what he would have to do if he did that, maybe it was like, oh, okay, well, but but when when we see Flint engaging with Raina for the first time, I don't think Flint really had that in mind yet because he was still kind of keeping her hidden. So yeah. he didn't have that idea. He's inconsistent well, for sure. Well, and I would say too, if that was his plan from the beginning, then posturing with Kirk is the wrong tactic. He should say, "Oh, of course, we want to help with your M4. Can gather the right talent and please come in." And uh, uh, oh my, we I don't yeah. want four hundred people to die. That would have been right. a better tactic. Okay, I'm going to be super generous in this next <laughs> analysis, which is that he was already, I mean, generous to the story and the way that it played out was that he was already feeling the conflict of wanting Kirk or somebody to meet Raina and also his jealousy. So he was wrestling with it already, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that's a very, very generous assessment. I I think a, yes, I think it is a very, very (laughs) generous assessment. And B, I, again, I go to, man, I think there were more interesting things to do with a person who's lived for 6,000 years than just someone who's kind of, reactionary and posturing and then doesn't maybe does or doesn't have a plan and it just he's this should be the the smartest most interesting guy we've ever experienced you know and he's not um but we go into his place and it is we're, we stay in a top-down shot by the way for a really really long time it's a, i have to say the directing in this episode is super weird and there are a lot of really odd heavy-handed self-conscious shots that distract from the action that's happening and that was that maybe the third one already for me, but that one I thought was such a strange choice. 
Well, there is a reason for that. There actually is a reason. The overhead shot definitely struck me. And when I was doing my my research, uh, apparently what happened was cinematographer Al Francis, who was now like the cinematographer for the third season after the great Jerry Finnerman moved on. So Al Francis was out sick for the first three days while they were filming most of their of their scenes inside, you know, Flint's home. So for the first two days of those three, John Finger stepped in. John Finger was the director of photography for Gomer Pyle, which was the show that was clobbering Star Trek in the ratings in season two. And then on the third day, uh, veteran cameraman Ernest Haller stepped in as the cinematographer. Ernest Haller was the DP on uh, the second pilot where no man has gone before. Mm. So that's uh, you have basically three cinematographers working on one episode. A most impressive home, Mr. Flint. Yes, uh, Shakespeare first folio, the Gutenberg Bible. And a bunch of other stuff, including, as we always do, moving into the future as something from Tarsus 7. <laughs> I don't think that we give enough holy shit, this is nuts to the Shakespeare first folio and the Gutenberg Bible, you know? Uh, absolutely. Spock Great. does. Spock does in his own way, you know, uh, his logical way. Spock is the voice of reason in many ways throughout this episode, and and his commanding officer won't listen to him in, in ways that he absolutely should. But Spock picks up on this right away. And Spock shows a talent that we're going to later see that who knew this guy had. Yeah, he um, knows a lot of things. <laughs> he does. Well, that's that's what we love about him. That's what we love about Spock. But you know that that's a that's a background that you know that that all the stuff would have fetched a mint on eBay. <laughs> yeah, I think it would break eBay to be honest. Spock um, and- to me is like a symbol of this episode in a way because like i said it's a good story trapped inside a bad episode and spock is like keeps trying to get the good story out and he keeps being ignored i mean from the very beginning when he says you know i'm picking up a reading and kirk's like i got no time for that so it's he's he's (laughs) constantly raising the question and constantly being ignored and he says you know be comfortable and he's gonna offers them brandy and he's gonna go off and work on the processing do we trust him it would seem logical to do so for the moment and I'm like, why? What has this guy given that you should trust your crew is going to die in less than four hours? Like, I don't think you trust this guy. I, I don't think it's logical to trust him. I think they, out of desperation, they have no choice but to trust him. Not to drink his brandy, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's really good brandy. By the way. It is really <laughs> good brandy. But before that, we see Kirk on a screen, on a flat screen, pretty cool for the time. On some very like oldie time nightstand, which is sort of cool. And then we see this woman on a throne or a very fancy chair watching. And the thing that gets me about the outfits of Raina and Flint, which I love as a kid, I loved their costumes so much. I always thought Flint's cape was so cool. But this is what they wear for just sitting around on a casual day in their house is what made me laugh. Like they yeah, are dressed yeah. to go to a gala. They're, they're not wearing like, you know, a T-shirt and sweatpants or something. No, you know? her outfit is crazy. I mean, it's fantastic, but it's crazy. Well, Raina is played by Louise Sorrell, and uh, she was on TV shows like The Fugitive, Bonanza, Mannix, Night Gallery. And she did a whole lot of episodes of the soap operas Santa Barbara and Days of Our Lives. She worked with William Shatner many times. Before Star Trek in 1963 on the TV show Route 66, 
and also on his really short-lived 1975 TV series, Barbary Coast. He was, she was also in the TV movie Perilous Voyage with Shatner, and she is also in the movie Airplane 2 with Shatner. Um, but I love doing this research, and I and, – so Jerome Bixby had an original choice to play Raina. You know, it's not as like totally far out. It was like a wow as like Carol O'Connor playing Flint. But Bill Bixby, Bill Bixby, Jerome Bixby's original choice to play Raina was Barbara Anderson. So Barbara Anderson, does that name ring a bell to you, Laurie Ulster? It does. And I'm, oh, it's killing me because she, I can see her, but I can't. You better just fill me in. Well, you'll, 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 if you see her, you might have this image of her crying over her dead father saying, The play's the thing. Yes, oh, catch yes, the conscience yes. of the king. Yes. I was like the poofy hair, I had the whole thing. So there you go. Yes. She was Lenore Caridian in The Conscience of the King. And when Jerome Bixby recommended her to play Raina, uh, the reply was she was already busy as a series lead on the TV series Ironside. I think bringing back a love interest that's so central would have been, I know they've brought back lots of actors lots of times and lots of times it's worked really well. I don't think that would have worked as well. I yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I'll need two hours to process that right talent into antitoxin. If that right talent isn't here in one hour, we'll go prospecting right over Mr. Flint if necessary. A while ago, you said you had four hours. You need two hours to process it. You're going to wait an hour. And everybody is going to die if you don't get this right. I think you're kind of lackadaisical about this issue. Yeah, yeah. And and look, also just the fact that you beamed down just Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Like, I would have beamed down a whole team of scientists, yeah. you know, blue shirts and red shirts to find the right talent. Like, this is really, really damn urgent. The other thing I was thinking about is Rigelian fever. Is that contagious? Yeah, I was wondering that, too. I was thinking about two things. One, they're going to a planet where they could they could infect Flint yeah. and someone else. Or I was thinking, like, do they have no method on the ship for quarantining people who have it from the other people? It's all just not handled right. <laughs> it's all shoehorning things in to get yeah. to where they want to go without a lot of thought, without thinking it through. Right. Absolutely. This is the most splendid private collection of art I've ever seen and the most unique the majority of the works of Leonardo da Vinci, Renaissance period. Some of the works of Reginald Pollock, 20th century. I wonder if he means Jackson Pollock. Is there a Reginald Pollock? There is. Was? I looked okay, it up. There is, there is yeah. in fact, a Reginald Pollock. And then we cut to uh, what we saw before, which is Reina and Flint watching on that cool flat screen. And by the way, I even think the stand that the flat screen is in kind of looks like some stands that I see modern flat screens on. Yeah, it um, looks like an Apple, uh, an Apple screen. Last I've seen other humans. Other men. One is not human. The Vulcan. And she seems particularly interested in the Vulcan. So that is a Vulcan. I would like to discuss subdimensional physics with him. You've taught me all you know in the area, and you say Vulcans know more. Which is a crazy statement, by the way. Why would what? all Vulcans know about subdimensional physics? All of them? Any Vulcan? Yeah, apparently. It's like in it's like in <laughs> kindergarten. <laughs> Let me meet them. They are selfish, brutal, a part of the human community which I rejected and from which I've shielded you. So, yeah, I don't think we can say that he was always thinking about introducing them. Uh, does he kiss her at this moment? 
He like leans in like he's going to, and then she just looks super confused. Maybe this is the moment the where where Flynn has the epiphany where he says, Wow, she's still not responding to me. She seems pretty interested in these other guys. Let me see where that goes. Maybe that will bring out the emotion in her. Yeah. Bring out so so that she can feel love. So this could be the epiphany moment that we were talking about before. Have you been lonely? What is loneliness? It's thirst. It is a flower dying in the desert. I love that answer. I do too. Flint, don't take this opportunity away from me. It's so exciting. And he has a reaction to that because she's never said something was exciting before. Exciting? Never made a demand of me before. I'm sorry. Do not be sorry. It might be interesting. Again, I still think the episode is working. Like, I'm still like, okay, what's going on here? There's interesting things. I think the way they're handling the Rigelian fever is terrible. But like, okay, well, this is interesting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's up to this point. When I was re- during the rewatch, I was going, "Oh, maybe this isn't so bad." Even though it what what immediately struck me during this rewatch is just how blandly lit everything is. Yeah, that's and, true. You know, I mean, it, the, the lighting is just so completely unspo- uninspired. Everything is just like totally like brightly lit. There's no none of that like canvas painting lighting style that. Finnerman did to just make Star Trek look like no other series before or since. We don't even get beauty shots of all the art. No. We don't get any of that. And that would have been, I just, again, I feel like the directing was off the whole time for me. It just didn't work. Well, part of the beauty shots of the art is if you were to do that, well, then you had to commission an artist to paint a painting that looks like Da Vinci painted it, but isn't a Da Vinci. You know, that's a that's a high bar to have to try to hit. Um, and one, by the way, I think they failed to hit when we hear the Brahms waltz later on. Sorry and Brandy, 100 years old. Jim, please. Mr. Spock, I know you won't have one. Heaven forbid those mathematically perfect brain waves be corrupted by this all too human vice. That makes me think back to a conversation they had prior to this. So so during the entire run of the original series you know we've only seen this twice but i feel like mccoy during this entire five-year mission has been has been trying to get spock to take a drink because remember back in conscience of the king where he says uh uh you know uh he, he's you know M- spock goes to mccoy for advice and uh, he says won't you have a drink uh have a little drop of the crew and he goes my father's race was spared the dubious benefits of alcohol and then McCoy goes, oh, now I know why they were conquered. <laughs> right. But in this case, Spock says, thank you, doctor. I will have a brandy. I just want to say as bad as this episode is for Kirk, it's really bad for McCoy, too. Like McCoy is supposed to cure this plague and he's having a belt, which seems yeah. like not a good idea. And as this goes on, he he consistently does either like creepy things or bad things. And I love him so much. So it was really disappointing to see him 
neglecting his duty and being kind of icky with Raina. Like all three of them. I mean, Kirk and McCoy especially are like, hey, let's have a drink. Let's, you know, like, shouldn't they like make sure that they're not being inhibited in any way by by the benefits of alcohol? I mean, like, and they're grinning. They're like super excited to have this drink too. Yeah. They're just like, yeah. all right, let's have a drink. And they're smiling and joking, which I just think feels very off considering this, the dead people on the ship. Exactly. If I appear distracted... It is because of what I've seen. I am close to experiencing an unaccustomed emotion. I'll drink to that. What emotion? Envy. Envy does not seem like the right emotion for, like, Spock wishes that he had a collection like this. Is that what he's saying? Oh, that's a good point. Um, I don't think that he'd be envious at this moment. Shocked, amazed, confused, you know. But yeah, envious. Yeah, I mean, what what else would it be envious of unless, uh, you know, I mean, because he doesn't know yet that he just thinks that this is like a, a, a collection of art that this guy has. He doesn't know that he's the one who created this work of art. Right. None of these Da Vinci paintings has ever been cataloged or reproduced. They are unknown works, all apparently authentic to the last brushstroke and use of materials. Which, by the way... This also pushes the, well, how much can Spock really know and figure out in like the few minutes that he's been here? Oh, it gets uh, better. <laughs> yeah. Yet my tricorder analysis indicates that the canvas and pigments used are of contemporary origin. And literally just a second ago, he said how it was the same materials that da Vinci used originally. So that doesn't make sense. This could be what it seems to be. Or it could be a cover, a setup, or even an illusion. Did either of you think about Trelane at all in this episode? Oh, a little bit, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple uh, times. But I, I think that, I thought that Trelane's lair was much more stylized. And, and you yeah. know, I think that Matt Jeffries, uh, 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 the art director, just, uh, and and plus, you know, Jerry Finnerman lighting the scene. I, I definitely thought about Trelane's, uh, you know, home. And what's so funny is that the Trotlane episode, it's so much more involving and tense than what we're feeling here. And, and design wise, I, I know, understand what they were trying to do, which is, okay, this is a super high tech environment that is decorated with ancient, beautiful art, you know? And so it's a mix of the modern and the old. And I understand that's what they're going for, but I don't think it's that great i don't think it works yeah. that well and then they say you know well let's just enjoy our brandy and then in comes m4 with a bag that it drops and we go yep this is the right talon he and mccoy goes okay beam me up to the ship we'll start processing and i'm like yeah why don't you right <laughs> like, yeah right <laughs> <laughs> um and and flint comes in and says no m4 can do that a lot better than you i would like to supervise that of course and when you are satisfied as to procedures i hope you will do me the honor of being my guest at dinner Thank you, Mr. Flint. I don't think we have the time. I regret my earlier inhospitality. Let me make amends. And then he gestures with his arm, and there, for the first time, we see Reyna, and it is shot, reverse shot, pushing in on her and on Kirk. And if you wanted to have, in like when I teach film school, the cliche versions of love at first sight <laughs> between two people who have never spoken... This is how you do it. And if you presented this to me as your pitch, I would say, don't do this because it's cheesy and terrible and it is not actually how you make good movies. I, I agree. It's ineffective. But let me ask both of you. This doesn't work. 
But when Kirk sees Edith Keeler for the first time, you're in. You buy it, hook, line, and sinker. She's talking. She's talking. (laughs) She actually has something to say. Right, right. I mean, how, how many beautiful women has Kirk run into that he didn't fall immediately in love with? Like, most of them. They're beautiful women in all sorts of episodes. It's only right. Edith Keeler who is saying amazing things. And right. then he, he goes, like, hey, she's interested. I find her quite unordinary or whatever. I forget what he says about her. You know, or Miramani, who he spends a lot of time with. Yeah, Right. Miramani, you know? of course, I mean, he's, you know, he lost his memory. So he... Is, I mean, he's Kirok, you know, he's not exactly Kirk. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right. Both of you pointed out at the same time that Edith Keeler is talking when Kirk sees her for the first time. And what she's saying in that moment is, you know, she's obviously a very strong person. She's like, who are you? What are you doing? Now, lie is a very poor way to say hello. It isn't that cold. And he's going, wow, that's bold, 1930. And then it's during... The, the 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 scene that you're referring to, Steve, when you said uh, when Kirk says, "I find her most uncommon, Mister Spock," he's That's falling in love with her spirit, with who she is as a person. Yep, she and she is a fascinating person who who sees through them. Go ahead, Lori. Well, even the ones that aren't like to me, Edith Keeler is his soulmate, so that's like a whole other category. But even the other women that he's had flings with or chemistry with, there's been some level of engagement. So, I mean, I was listening to you guys talking about Wink of an Eye, which is one of those bad episodes that's super fun for me to watch. And I yeah, yeah. Um, but he, but Dila right away engages with yeah. him and they have this kind of sparky conversation, no matter what's going on with all these double meanings and people are hiding things. And it's but this is just looking at this woman dressed for the ball. And that's also it. also, uh, you know, Dila is there's a playfulness to her. There's yes. a confidence to her, whereas I feel like Raina spends the entire episode looking like a deer in the headlights. Yep. But in any of the cases, does Kirk ever lose sight of his duty to the Enterprise? Is that with Edith Keeler, he might be falling in love with her, but his main purpose is to save the Enterprise and save the future. And to the point where he lets Edith Keeler die Bingo. in order to do the right thing. And, exactly. he, and with some of the other characters, and whether it's, you know, in Conscience of a King or Wink of an Eye or any of them, yes, he might be flirting with them. Yes, he might be chemi- have chemistry with them. Yes, he might even to some de- degree be attracted to them. But his goal is to do the right thing. And that is not what's happening here. What happens really? here is that we have a love at first sight moment. And from this point forward, Captain Kirk has forgotten his duty. He forgets his entire essential character established from all the way back at the beginning of the show, he's just like, man, I'm just so into this person who I haven't even talked to yet. From the very beginning of when I saw this episode, which was obviously, you know, when I was like a kid, it rubbed me the wrong way just how out of character Kirk was. More than any episode of the original series, this is the one where Kirk is the most unlike Kirk. And by the way, the first time I saw this episode, so... You know, when I was watching the original series at 1130 at night on Channel 17 in Philadelphia, what would happen was at 1230 on WPIX in New York, Star Trek would be on. But I was in Philadelphia and on my you know TV with the rabbit ears, 
I was able to get a good enough signal from WPIX in New York where the picture was pretty fuzzy, but the audio was perfectly fine. And I held my tape recorder up to the TV and I would tape those episodes too. But but that was actually the first time I saw Requiem for Methuselah. Mm. I was watching it late at night with a with a good friend of mine. Her name was Elise Litt, and I had a big crush on her, but you know, she was my friend and nothing ever happened. And I remember saying to her after the first time we saw the episode, like that was horrible. Like, why would Kirk <laughs> just like you know be so into the girl when like everyone on the Enterprise is dying? Like, I just remember as a little kid feeling like I was having that conversation that I'm having with the both of you at 54 years old. <laughs> so we're back in Act Two. Kirk is, you know, just staring at her, obviously in love, and then we get some introductions. Rena possesses the equivalent of 17 university degrees in the sciences and arts. And then we get some McCoy in his sort of... He goes into creepy. Yeah. <laughs> he goes into creepy because he says... But I must admit, you're the farthest thing from a bookworm I've ever seen. And says impressive results when, again, she hasn't really said anything yet. You are the only other men I've ever seen. The misfortune of men everywhere. And our privilege. I mean, I can see why Flint is like... Hey, McCoy, go do some lab stuff. Like, get out of here. <laughs> Your pleasure, gentlemen. Chess, billiards, conversation. Why not all three? And I'm like, <laughs> I wrote my notes. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone on the Enterprise is dying. <laughs> like, like, what? Really? I mean, again, like, I, I actually feel like this episode is so it, I mean, you have a first time Star Trek director. I mean, even though Jerome Bixby obviously wrote a couple of the best episodes, uh, you know, you still have Freiberger and, and Arthur Singer, you know, doing their revisions and everything. It's like, don't, don't, you know, have you, have you not been watching Star Trek? Do you not know who this guy is? Come on. Coy's in the lab with M4 and we're back to the billiard table and a top down shot. Did you teach her that? We play often. May I show you, Captain? So now she's going to teach him how to play billiards. Which is a bit of a nice reversal because usually the cliche thing is a man is always teaching mm. a woman how to do that. So I did definitely have a small appreciation of that. Um, and then we have a conversation about the brutality and savagery of humans and that the Enterprise is a warship and there's an argument about it. And it all just doesn't ring well because I don't know who Flint is. Like the first thing Flint did was threaten you know, to let them all die. So this discussion of, oh, you're so brutal is like, well, dude, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me in terms of his yep. character. Um, I think the bigger thing that didn't, I mean, I agree completely that that didn't work, but also Kirk still isn't talking to Raina. They're yeah. still not having a conversation. And in fact, he's rudely talking to Flint the whole time mm, while he's just sort of, you the know, point. cuddling with her over the billiard table. As human beings, that is the way it is. To be human is to be complex. You can't avoid a little ugliness. I wrote, as he turns to Raina with a smile. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, uh, yeah. Sorry. Well, it's funny. No, I, I, well, this is something we talked about is like Kirk, the, the cliche reputation of Kirk is as the womanizer. And I don't think most of the episodes of Star Trek bear that out. But if you just watch this episode, yeah, that's all he cares about. Well, it's like, I think when they started Next Generation, they went, we need someone who has some Kirk stuff because Picard is so different. So we gave Riker a bunch 
of Kirkisms. And one of them is Riker's womanizing in the first three seasons, at least of Next Generation, is so gross and stupid. And it's like what you see in this episode, you know. Which but, Kirk but, was not like before. I no. mean, we've, you know, we've, I've talked about this so, so much with the Trek movie gang, and we did a whole podcast about it, about Kirk's reputation and how it's unearned. It's not that. It's, you know, that's almost a caricature of Kirk, but it feels like, you know, the whatever was done to this episode was done by people who bought into that myth. In defense of Riker, I got to say that, yeah, sure, initially, I remember when I was watching the first season in real time, like, oh, yeah, they're trying to like, like, he's like sort of the entry point for TOS fans. Uh, he's like the the Kirk guy. But but Riker really came into his own. Uh, you know, Jonathan Frakes, uh, you know, I, I, I think of of the next gen crew. Riker is my favorite character. Um, hmm. And I think that Jonathan Frakes really did a great job. The evolution of Riker. Some really, really good stuff there. Some of my favorite episodes are, are Riker episodes like Second Chances. Um, but I thought that – that I mean I agree with you that in the beginning he was like the Kirk guy, but obviously he came into his own. Yeah, well, I think that was – I mean he, they, it was when they let more freaks get into Riker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah his sense true. of humor and his style yeah. and all yeah, – absolutely. I, I think like the real lesson of doing this show is uh, – with you, Scott, has been – most of Kirk is about resisting love and losing love. That's what most of Kirk is, not womanizing. That That is really the opposite of who he is. Agreed. Agree 100%. And his uh, loneliness is a big part of his story. I mean, he talks about it so early on in season one, mm-hmm. where he's talking about his loneliness and how he can't be with someone. And that comes up later in Generations, again, where what he really wanted was this I mean, I don't think he wanted this instead, but one of the things he regretted was not having that domestic life and that relationship. Why don't you play the waltz, Mr. Spock? To be human is also to seek pleasure, to laugh, to dance. Rena is the most accomplished dancer. So Spock sits down to play the piano. He's uh, playing a paraphrase of Brahms that was actually written, especially for this episode, by uh, Ivan Dittmar. So I thought that was interesting. Who also wrote the music that Trelane plays in The Squire of Gothos. Oh. There you go. Laurie Ulcer just earned her stripes as an enterpriser. <laughs> I think The Squire of Gothos music is much better than this music. I agree. I, I am the farthest thing from a classical music expert. And I, you know, I know what some Brahms sounds like, but I find this music like plodding and repetitive and not that great. <laughs> It doesn't help that the scene it's in is terrible. So they dance. I wrote, so they dance. They're still dancing. Still dancing. Can we talk (laughs) about this dance for a minute? Because there is this weird, like, first of all, Kirk is putting like his lip to Raina's cheek. It's a weirdly close dance. And sometimes the way that he's holding her is very odd. But it's just, it feels weirdly like pushy and unnatural and strange. It does not look like two people who are flowing into a rhythm because you can actually create, I mean, since they don't have any real conversations, you could actually use the dance to show a connection building between them. You could use exactly. the physicality of that and they don't. I, I just, I don't buy anything about their relationship at all. And how, like, without that, you don't have an episode. It, it, it's just like, not only have you not spoken to this woman and just had a love at first sight, 
not only is your crew dying while this is going on, but like you're in a weird situation with a fairly powerful dude who you know nothing about in all of this. It's like, and you're just going to make moves on this woman in front of him. It just is. It's stupid and terrible in all sorts of ways. Yeah. yeah, And and the biggest one really is dancing when your crew is dying. Yeah. Bottom line. Oh, come on. I mean, it's just like, like, dude, your crew, your crew is dying. You're not, you're not racing to, to get Zenite to another planet. This is your crew. And you're not, and he knows he doesn't need to woo her to get something. Right. Yeah. So, there, yeah. There's no purpose to it. Um, and in the midst of the dancing, in comes McCoy to say that the right talent is no good. It's got some iridium in it that makes it useless. Um, and we go, okay, we'll just go with M4 to gather some more. There's, <laughs> and again, one other, there's one other thing right before that, which is when McCoy walks in, Kirk just stops dancing, doesn't say anything to Raina at all, and just turns to McCoy. So again, like if that's love at first sight, he's already treating her like they've been married for 70 years. <laughs> I really go like, man, okay, we just blew an hour or something. We only had an hour. And, you know, this is not, the. it's just the level of urgency continues to be ridiculously low. Um, and now Spock is looking at the music and says this waltz i just played is by johannes Brahms. later spock captain it is written in manuscript in original manuscript in brahm's own hand which i recognize you know i think it's totally makes sense that spock is interested in the music and art and all of this stuff but the crew is dying like the fact that he's taking any it should be all hands on deck we should have been down 50 people to get her, you know, what right talent. Like, this is just all terrible. But Spock recognizes Brahms' handwriting. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah this which is, is his a, own hand. A very specific piece of knowledge and very random for Spock to have. I would, I get that Spock's always been into art and music. And I think his noticing of all those things is that he's noticing that they shouldn't exist. And he's trying to flag, like, there is something going on here. It's not so just admiring art. It's saying there's, there's something right. awry. There's two but things it, here. It is a Earth. pretty funny moment when he says, but I recognize his hand or whatever he says. <laughs> You're like, wow, Spock. I think I will go to the laboratory. There may be a way of reversing the Irelium's effect and saving the existing antitoxin. Stay here. Wouldn't Spock be helpful for that? Exactly. <laughs> but you stay here. And, and play and the look piano. At, <laughs> like, all right. So first uh, of all, two things. Uh, that original manuscript of Brahms would have really, really fetched a mint on eBay. Uh, second, you know, one of the, Steve and I have talked about this many times about Spock is that, and this is something that I think works well in this episode, but not well enough to save it from its flaws is that when we watch devil in the dark and we see that Spock is putting the pieces together, we see that Spock is on to something definitely more than than everyone around him, but he's not like stepping forward and saying, oh, this uh, rock creature is a mother um, pr protecting its kids. And and he's also like in, in this case, uh, it's not saying, oh, wait, th this guy, you know, who did all this artwork is this guy. Um <laughs> But we're seeing him put the pieces together, and he's not saying anything until he's sure. Spock is already suspecting that there's a reason why this is an original manuscript. He's just – he's not ready to come forward with this theory just yet. 
I think this would have been a much better episode if there was no plague. And I think it would have been a much better episode if it was, if it actually was from the beginning, Flint's plan to have Raina interact with a human or in order to bring her emotions out. I, and you eliminate, just get rid of, there's no plague. He literally, it's like metamorphosis. Make this more like metamorphosis that he captures Kirk for this reason to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Which would also I, give Kirk more of a reason to be spending time with Raina and trying to right. gather information, which is not what he's doing at all. Or you have a more experienced director who who has worked on Star Trek many, many times and gets it, who knows how to make the B story, which really the plague on the Enterprise should be the A story. It's the B story. But have that drive the suspense and the intensity and the the edge of your seatness of it all further. Someone like like Mark Daniels, who directed, you know, the Doomsday Machine. Uh, would it, you know, or or Joe Pevney, Joseph Pevney, who directed The Deadly Years, you know, all that stuff with the Romulans and they're going into Romulan space. Like, granted, there's more of like there's more of a dogfight aspect to all that, but at least you would have had a director who is really good with establishing establishing that suspense. And uh, the director of this episode just did not do that. Well, it's also whoever made some of the decisions in the writing, I don't want to blame Jerome Bix because I feel like he probably had a smarter premise for it, but the whole four hours idea fails in so many ways Yeah, because one, they fall in love in four and four hours is this, we're supposed to believe this relationship is happening. And you're, I mean, like Steve, you're right. Like when they lose an hour, they've lost an hour out of their four Yeah, (laughs) and now they're down to three. So that's why we're also sort of, unhappy with the lack of urgency because if it was a longer time we could maybe buy that they were trying to figure something out and not neglecting their duties well and what if there was a thing that they had to do that kirk had to like what if like what if they're what if it's like metamorphosis and they're captured on this planet and now kirk wants to get off of the planet and he is meets reyna and they end up working together to escape you know, because she doesn't know everything about it. like he's asking her about Flint rather than having Flint say things. He's having interactions with her and conversations with her. And then she's making discoveries on the way and he's discovering how intelligent and perceptive and all those things she are. She is. And that's why he starts to be attracted to her rather than just like a love at first sight moment, you know. Yeah, and better than the dancing, I kept thinking if they'd had like Spock and McCoy doing something, but we see Kirk and Raina like animatedly chatting in the background, <laughs> like something that shows them making a connection yeah, instead of yeah. this weirdly directed swirly dancing scene. But we do leave Spock with the piano and Kirk goes to the lab and he's looking at colored bottles and he's looking around and there's Raina. Well, first he watches her and kind of walks mm. up behind her in a, yeah. again in a pretty creepy way. He left us. The room became lonely. It is a thirst, a flower dying in the desert. Which is, you know, I like the bringing back our little bit of poetry. And then there's this door and he asks what's in there and she goes, I do not know. Flint told me never to enter. He denies me nothing else. Is he Bluebeard? That's what I kept thinking. <laughs> it's totally blue. It's a totally Bluebeard thing. Well, it's also why, why is he keeping these bodies around? Because that's what's in there. Yep. Right. They're the, they're the older models. Of the replicants. No, and why do you have a secret room that you tell someone they're never supposed to go in? That just that, seems silly. That have bodies that say rate of 1560. Right, you've so, you know. labeled everything. 
I come here when I am troubled. Are you troubled now? I find Kirk's moves on her in this scene so gross. Because, par- partially because her performance is nervous, uncomfortable, unsure of herself, afraid, right. indecisive. Right. That's what I mean. She doesn't have like a she does, she's not acting like a like a a, a visionary uh, trailblazer like like Edith Keeler, and she's not really flirty like like Dila from uh, Wink of an Eye. So, you know, just as another example, like she's there's like nothing to her. There's really nothing to her. Well, it's not just that. So so there's two things here for me. One is. There's nothing for Kirk to be attracted to because he hasn't met someone that's like those things you just described. There's also like, dude, the signs are not there that this woman is available for you to make some moves on. She is exactly the kind of person that you should give some space to because she is uncomfortable. Like, it's gross what's happening. I mean, in my notes when I was watching this, I wrote, he circles her, weirdo. Like he does this weird, he's physically very strange with her and more so as the scene continues, where just the way he's holding her and the way his hands are on her, it's all just sort of grippy and weird and, and not romantic at all. No, no, it's, it's, and he, and he moves in and, you know, he has a, there's a kind of a classic Shatner grab you by the shoulders, uh, romantic move that he does. And I don't, it's just kind of in this case, feels really, really weird. And he touches her face and says, and this is, by the way, this is a creepy line. Don't be afraid. That's just like, ugh. <laughs> like yeah, I, I was like, I would be afraid because of the way that he was acting. Like, yeah, he would I, make I, me afraid. I, I He's you. stroking her neck, like, really weirdly and doing all these. It's all very uncomfortable. A lot of the research that I get for these podcast episodes comes from these are the voyages, the uh, three volume uh, book series written by Mark Cushman. Which, if anybody listening doesn't have these books, you're missing out. These books are fantastic. And when he gets into the third season, you read more about how William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, in particular, would speak up to the directors, the first time directors, if they were asked to do something. No, they would say, no, my character would never do that, especially Nimoy. Nimoy would write memos to oh, Freiburger yeah. about it, um, which are legendary. But even Shatner would say, uh, say, you know, no, my character wouldn't do that. Now, why wouldn't Shatner reading this script or getting ready to film a certain scene sound like, 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 no, nah, Kirk wouldn't do this. And I'll tell you why. Because by this point, so late in the third season, when, when they still think ratings are not great, they have not gotten any word yet about a pickup for season four, and and they're, 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 all these rumors are flying around that the show is going to be canceled. They, they're, they're tired. The morale of the show was really, really bad. And I just think that by this point, Shatner just had one foot out the door. You can feel it. You can feel it. You, you can, can feel, feel it. it. I felt the same way because he, yeah, cause he would have spoken up. And also he was great at actual romantic scenes i mean that's one of his one of his many strengths is that he was really good in those scenes so it does feel like he's just going through the motions and just tell me where to stand and what to do and what to say and i'll do it exactly he's literally he's like he phoned it in he's like okay let's get this over with i mean there was one more truly great episode to come that's just you know right around the corner uh that i felt like was inspired but you know so many of these episodes that we've done lately steve have been just like oh 
God, you know, it's like, it's, it's depressing. It's a, it's, it's a tragic thing to see that, that the show that was so great, you know, in the first and second season has just gotten to this point where there's more bad episodes than good ones. But he does kiss her. She doesn't exactly kiss him back. And then there is M4 and there's intense music. And I'll just say like, this is this is scary because the show is telling you it's scary because the scary music comes in. <laughs> but all it is is M4, the servant robot that she's grown up with forever, has just floated into the room. There isn't actually anything threatening going on, but but the implication is that it's threatening. Yes. And and that's the end of Act Two. In Act Three, we come back to the same spot. He grabs his phaser, realizes it doesn't work. Is M4 going to kill him at this moment? Well, he uh, gets aggressive with it, so maybe. Yeah, I mean, he I mean, he immediately becomes aggressive. Because the thing is, if M four was gonna kill him, he would kill him. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, the, it's just kind <laughs> of fired around. Already. He would have fired. Yeah. He would have already fired. Yeah, because yeah. Rain is gone, and then out of nowhere, it gets hit by a phaser. And <laughs> and it's funny. I wrote down, "Why did that phaser work?" And Spock, Spock says, explains it. <laughs> Fortunately, the robot did not detect my presence and deactivate my phaser. I'm like, well, I was lucky. Yeah. that felt like he i almost thought he turned to the camera and told the audience that that's what <laughs> yeah like. m4 was programmed to defend this household and its members no doubt i should have altered its instructions to allow for unauthorized but predictable actions on your part is the unauthorized but predictable hate uh behavior him making moves on reyna yep it thought you were attacking reyna a misinterpretation if it were around right now it would correct and of course, there's M4 because we got another one. Yeah, that was like I've totally I totally forgot about that moment. Like, oh, I just built another one. Like it's so lazy. It's so lazy. The writing is so lazy. Well, he had um, all these parts of nomads sitting around, so he had yeah, to do yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, that's the, did he actually find parts of nomad? That's what I always wondered. Maybe he found those parts floating in space. He was the other. <laughs> M4 was the other. <laughs> there you go. Be thankful that you did not attack me, Captain. I might have accepted battle, and I have twice your physical strength. And now, Kirk, again, the weird posturing. In your own words, it would be an interesting test of power. And then he tries to, and it's interesting that he talks about how his systems operate automatically and not always in accordance with my wishes. And then he orders Reyna to come. And she does not come. And I'm like, oh, she's one of his systems that is not operating according to his wishes. I don't like the way he orders her around. The way he says it, it's like, I mean, you just met this person. You've been there for about an hour and a half. It's not earned at all. There's nothing convincing about Kirk's attraction. I mean, you know, I'm going to just repeat what we've been saying. No, nothing about this feels right. And and with a different line delivery, that line could have worked better if it wasn't so edgy. Right. It's not, I am unhappy watching a behavior that I don't like. It is, I'm into this woman and he's like moving in on that space kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah, good point. And, and the thing too is like, my guess is at some point you two have gone to somebody's house and you saw people, a couple or a parent and a kid behaving in a way that you kind of didn't like. And in general, you don't make a stink about it in somebody else's house unless it gets really, really bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you're in someone else's house, not, much less the prime directive and stuff. I'm not saying it's that, but like 
Dude, back off. This is their house. Since we are dependent on Mr. Flint for the right talent, Captain, I respectfully suggest that you pay less attention to the young lady if you should encounter her again. Our host's interests do not appear to be confined to art and science. Again, Spock trying to break out of the bad episode. He keeps trying to turn it into a good one, and it just doesn't work. You know, like like Spock is just one step away from giving Kirk the smack that he gave uh, Nancy in the man trap. Get <laughs> out of it. You know, pay attention to what's really wrong here. Your people and your crew is dying. Report on the Rogelian fever. Nearly everybody aboard has got it, Captain. We're working a skeleton crew and waiting for the right talent. All right, here's the thing. Here's what I got to say about. So now we're on the bridge of the Enterprise and we see Scotty and Uhura. There's a plague raging through the Enterprise. They look just fine. Yeah, yeah. I know. Like, you know, <laughs> they here's look fresh chance, out of another episode. <laughs> right, here's a chance. Like, okay, well, if, we, if we're going to go forward with the expense of firing up stage nine and lighting up the bridge and putting, you know, putting a couple of your regulars like have Uhura stand up and faint, you know, something that shows one of our beloved regulars has it. And a little like, sweat would have gone nothing, a long way. Nothing. We have still a greater mystery, Captain. I was able to run a tricorder scan on Mr. Flint. He is human. But there are certain biophysical peculiarities. Some body function readings are disproportionate. For one thing, extreme age is indicated. On the order of 6,000 years. I totally think the guy who's lived for 6,000 years is a totally interesting science fiction Agreed. thing. Yes. And I wish there was a good episode about it. Yep. And then we cut to Flint and uh, Reyna who are watching all of this. And during this, they hear uh, uh, Spock say, It's logical to assume that we are being monitored and that he is aware of our every move. Which, which, what is the purpose of that scene? You know, Spock uh, saying that while Flint and Rain are actually watching them, him say that. Um, we hear from Scotty that they don't have any red information on Raina either. Raina, by the way, uh, this is the first time we actually hear that Raina has a last name. Capec. Uh, oh. K-A-P-E-C. Uh, and Raina's surname of Capec came from the Czech writer Karel Capec, who first coined the term robot yeah i thought his name was chapik i thought it was pronounced that way but I maybe it's chapik maybe you're right yeah yeah yeah. a lot of interesting elements that never it's like a souffle that never builds (laughs) what hold does he have over captain i would suggest that our immediate concern is the right talent i'm like yes that is your (laughs) no and this time kirk is sort of like oh yeah Oh yeah, let's yeah, find yeah. the boy. <laughs> but then, but then Raina shows up and he goes, "Hold on, never mind. You go ahead. I'll, yeah. I'll catch up." <laughs> I wrote down, "Idiot." <laughs> yeah. It really, it's just like this isn't Captain Kirk. I don't know who this guy is. Yeah, I don't know who this is. Yep. Yeah, you know, we talk so much about this guy being our hero and and what makes him a great leader and what makes him so smart and how dedicated he is and compassion and sacrifice and all those stuff. Totally absent from this episode. I've come to say goodbye. I don't want to say goodbye. <laughs> he puts his hands on her shoulders and getting romantic, touches her face. And I wrote down moron. <laughs> um, it goes to kiss her again. And now Flint is watching this and it's like Spock just told you not to mess with this woman multiple times. Spock just told you we're probably being monitored all this time. Spock told him, Hey, Flint's jealous and you're still making moves on her. You know, Good point. 
Absolutely good point. Also, as Flint's watching on the screen, the camera angle changes, which I thought was interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's always funny. And I think she still looks scared. I still think she yeah. looks yeah. I she's put that she's, she's giving him like a weird stare and sometimes not quite looking at his face. And it's, you know, not a good time to kiss someone is when they're looking all confused and right. unsettled. Right. I tell you, Spock, I was waiting for the robot to finish the processing, and the next thing I knew it was gone, and so was the right talent. Interesting. Obviously, Mr. Flint is not yet ready for us to depart. Well, I think we'd better tell Jim. The captain wanted us to wait here. Well, this is pretty important. (laughs) It's like, yeah. No, you should go tell Jim. And Kirk is now essentially, I mean, it's basically proposing. Come with me. I offer you happiness. Not buying it. He looks deranged. He actually yeah. looks a little deranged in this scene. He's saying, you love me, not Flint. And it's just, and she's not really looking at him. And it's just a very, very strange and awkward and uncomfortable well, there is, moment. I, I, I hate to say this, but there is no chemistry, no chemistry between Louise Sorrell and William Shatner. Which and- is funny because if you read interviews with her about doing the episode, she says they had had a history, they'd worked together, she loved working with him, and they had a great time. And none of yeah. that is on screen. She, she uh-uh. actually, I, you know, as one of my parting uh, quotes, which I'll read now because Laurie opened the door to it, Laurie Sorrell said, William Shatner was so damn funny. He's mischievous. We'd look at each other and laugh because he looks like he was, he always looked like he was going to burst into laughter when you looked at him. And he was a bit of a flirt. He can't help it. So he flirted, but it was really innocent. He just loved the women. I mean, he got them every week. And I'm not, I'm not sensing any of that at all. It's all the script. It's in direction to some lesser degree. But if you don't give actors good things to do, then it's real tough to have chemistry. And yeah. her, they've given her the role of you're nervous and unsure, which is not a good way to have romantic chemistry. And they gave him the role of you have for no reason whatsoever are 100% head over heels in love with this person. And like, and assumed she feels the same way he's decided he's had no indication that that's how she feels. Yeah. She looks scared the whole time. Yep. Um, So she runs away and he looks just absolutely broken. And it's funny. I said this uh, when we did um, Mark of Gideon that I felt like his being attracted to whatever her name was, was a insult to Edith Keeler and Miramani this one's way worse. Totally. Like, totally. He, because I don't, you know, like, okay, he kind of said that he was into her in, in Mark of Gideon, but here he looks broken. He looks like my one true love has left. In two hours? <laughs> when she's barely spoken. Uh, and we end up back in the lab and talk about the right talent not being there. And the tricorder says, hey, guess what? It's behind that door. Why did Flint put have the robot put the right talent back there. Why does he want Kirk to go in there? So that he'll Great leave question. and give her up. Yeah, but he doesn't want him to leave. He's not going to let him leave. Oh, yeah, right. Well, they hadn't decided that yet. Just kidding. <laughs> it does um, It does feel like sections of this episode were written where they hadn't decided and then they didn't go back to fix it once they yeah. figured out what the path was. But they decide we're going to go through and, the, and at first they think they have to, you know, blast the door open, but it just opens. I shall get the right talent. Why you? And he tries to come up with lies, and now McCoy is kind of going, you know, what's going on? Why? Get to the point, Spock, if there is one. 
I feel like at that minute, Spock is like, Oi, McCoy, come on. I'm trying to do something here. Yeah. Like I, you know, yeah, like right. I feel like he's trying so hard. And McCoy, come on, man. And then, nope, too bad. McCoy's on Kirk's side. We go in, we find the right talent. And again, and again, at this point, I'm like, yeah, you should beam up immediately. Like, what are you even waiting for? We have it. Let's go. Let's or go. at least right. have, have McCoy go. And then we see a body under a sheet and it says Reina 16. And Kirk walks over, pulls back the sheet. And there is a bald headed woman there. And he reacts to it. And then he looks around the room and sees Reina 14 and Reina 15 and all sorts of other bodies. And that is the end of Act 3. So we're, we're coming into Act 4. And clearly what we are now realizing is that Reina is an android. Reina is a replicant. So back when we covered, when we covered what are little girls made of, there was a key moment in that episode where Kirk is hanging from a, you know, like a cliff and he is saved at a, at a split second moment by Ruck, just in the same way that Batty saves Deckard like he has a burst of humanity. Right. And, and it was a connection that one of our enterprisers, one of our listeners actually brought to our attention. So I'm watching this episode, which, uh, okay, now we have uh, synthetic humans or androids or replicants, whatever you want to call them. And I'm saying, oh, okay, so basically Raina is Rachel, uh, the Sean Young character from Wave Runner. Yeah. Uh, neither one of them knew that they were androids because at first Rachel did not know that she was a replicant. Then you have this whole thing going back to uh, what a little girl is made of, uh, like what it means to be human. That could have opened up the door to this episode in a whole other way, and that doesn't happen. I think the androids and emotions to androids and is this a human or is this not human and ideas of sentience – that's like classic science fiction ideas. It's great ideas. It's just executed really poorly. And the thing is, Scott, I didn't think about this until you just said it. But the thing about Rachel is that Rachel is only a year or two old. I don't know how right. old she is, she but she has memories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but she has memories uh, that go all the way back to her childhood because she has mm -hmm. implanted memories. Right. We just saw what Raina's 15's body was. Was Raina made as an adult like Rachel was? I think so. Yeah, I assume so. So she also has to have implanted memories. Correct. Yep. And here's the other thing is like next generation took what kind of worked about this story and made the offspring. Right. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and so they took like, I mean, she does know that she's created, but trying to figure out sentience and, and is she a person and is data a person and all of these questions raised in much more thoughtful ways than they are here. Here, the centuries of loneliness were to end. Your collection of Leonardo da Vinci masterpieces, Mr. Flint. They appear to have been recently painted. And on your piano, a waltz by Johannes Brahms. And he says, and it's a dramatic moment. I am Brahms. And da Vinci. Yes. How many other names shall we call you? Solomon, Alexander, Lazarus, Methuselah, Merlin, Abramson, a hundred other names you do not know. Merlin. That was a cool one. I was excited yep. about Merlin. As a kid, I loved this particular moment. 
I was I, super big. Like, he says, I am Brahms with his fantastic voice. And yep. you're just like, oh, that's so cool. And he really was all these people. And that is a great premise. This is a great moment, but that's not what this episode is about. Nope. And it should have been. Uh, of course, the the plague on the Enterprise being like like those are pretty big moments, and that's not what this episode is about. And Flint even says there's a hundred other names that you did not know. And in the original story, uh, going back a few uh, a few rewrites here, Flint wasn't Brahms. Flint was Beethoven, and he lived not for six thousand years, but for eight thousand years. And that line where he goes, "I am Brahms and Da Vinci and Solomon Alexander." Flint also referred to himself as Moses, as Jesus, as Picasso. Mm. Regarding Moses and Jesus, Fred Freiberger was worried about backlash from religious groups. So he took out Moses and took out Jesus, which was probably wise. Although he says he knew Moses. Well, yeah. Yeah. And also uh, he took out Picasso because when this episode was filmed in late 1968, Picasso was still with us. Yeah. So uh, he took that out. <laughs> Everything he does here, I really like when he talks about how, how he was born, how he first died and realized he couldn't die. And You learn that you're immortal. And to conceal it, to live some portion of a life, to pretend to age and then move on before my nature was suspected. Isn't that a clash with being all these famous people? It would have been hard to pull some of them off. Yeah, you know? like it's one thing to be... To, to live a life and move on. And it's another thing to live a very notorious life <laughs> and everybody knows who you are and then move on. And I also, I mean, if I were doing the research for this, for writing this episode, I would try to find famous people who died in a way that they, that wasn't necessarily identified. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, there are two different versions of this later on that uh, this reminds me of, which is of course Highlander because that's how they live. And then also there's that character in the Sandman books who gets granted eternal life that Sandman meets with every hundred years. And again, those are much more interesting versions of what they're doing here that they just don't fill out all the stuff about it. Uh, I do like how he talks about love. He says, I have married a hundred times, Captain. Selected, loved, cherished, caressed a smoothness, inhaled a brief fragrance. Then age death the taste of dust you could see that this guy's a good writer when he likes when he is enjoying yep. what he's writing you know yeah yeah and that's why he did this is he's trying to design the ultimate perfect immortal mate for himself you cannot love an android captain i love her she is my handiwork my property she is what i desire that's a weird idea of love yeah <laughs> yeah he's lived uh, six thousand years and he doesn't know what it means to love and that's how he's treating reina but she know she will never know and the thought i had is that man this would be a really great moment to have reina watching all this on the monitor yep right that's a good point and kirk's like all right let's go finally <laughs> and they he goes no you'll stay if you leave the curious would follow the foolish the meddlers the officials the seekers it's, it's so funny because it's metamorphosis and it's all these other ideas, but this it just doesn't work very well. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Kirk tries to call the Enterprise and the Enterprise and, and Flint pushes a little button on a thingy and the Enterprise disappears. No answer for Kirk. And he pushes another button. And there is a model Enterprise on the table. The three foot model that they use for filming. I mean, why not just use that versus just, you know, building an A&T model? 
But this is the weird part. Kirk like looks in the view screen. <laughs> Everyone is like, so Kirk can see inside the bridge. I thought the view screen was like a television with like a flat screen. Yeah, it's not supposed to be a window. Right, exactly. And the thing is, the way that model of the Enterprise, which is really cool, it's a, such a failure in terms of a special effect. Like, that's not the Enterprise. You know what I mean? Like, you would need really modern special effects to kind of pull off what they're trying to do. It is like, yeah, there's a model of the Enterprise. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It wipe out 400 lives. Why? I have seen a hundred billion fall. I know death better than any man. I've tossed enemies into his grasp. And... I know mercy because the crew's in suspended animation and he's going to put, you know, Kirk and his guys back in there. You have been such men. You've known and created such beauty. You've watched your race evolve from cruelty and barbarism throughout your enormous life. And yet now you would do this to us. And I think McCoy's got a real good point. And I also think like, I don't understand Flint's character. I really, I think it's just super inconsistent, inconsistent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have another question. So if they're frozen, will he keep the right talent around for when he finally unfreezes them? Because they all have this terrible disease. Because they have this disease, yeah. It's a great <laughs> point. At last, Rainer's emotions have stirred to life. Now they will turn to me in this solitude which I preserve. It's a really weird... Like, it, Flint's a horrible person, I think, at this point in the way that he thinks about Raina. It's I, I like to think it's the loneliness. It's the fact that yeah. he's just been on his own for so long and that he's seen so much death and loss that he's just lost his perspective. He's lost his humanity, the humanity he wants her to have. Yeah. He's lost. Mm-hmm. And that's when Raina enters um, and says no. Now, are we still in the lab with all the Raina bodies? I keep wondering that. Mm. It's like, shouldn't this be the moment that she realizes, like, uh, there's something about myself I've just found out that I didn't yeah, know? Yeah. And it re- they really don't. And it's like, that seems like that would be a big deal. You must not do this to them. I must. And now Flint relents, I guess, and prints the ship back in orbit. So is he thinking he's going to let them go? Well, something's going to happen if he puts the yep. Enterprise back up there. Sure. And Kirk really, he's getting somewhat crazed at this point. He says, You realize what was happening? You kept us together, Raina and me, because you knew I could bring her emotions alive. And now you're just going to take over. And again, he's no one's talking to Raina. Uh, <laughs> Flint says, I shall take what is mine. We are mated, Captain, alike, immortal. And if you're saying she's immortal, then how, what did you mean by she's never going to know about that she was an android? And this sentence makes no sense. You must forget your feelings in this matter, which is quite impossible for you. I don't know, she, that, I don't yeah. know what that means. It doesn't make any sense. And then Shatner, with all of this intensity, goes, Impossible. Impossible. From the beginning, you used me. I can't love her. But I do love her. After two hours. Two whole hours. I know. It's just <laughs> where she's barely spoken to him. I know. It's so it's I know there was a definitely like a trope for many, many years. And it's still sometimes in movies and TV where the woman, you, they just say that she's desirable and wonderful and she doesn't have to speak or prove it. But this is like the worst example of that. It's certainly the worst in Star Trek, you know, the original series. Yeah. Because. Um, there are even a, a lot of the women, uh, and Scott, you can name all the names and I'm not good at it, but like whether it's in Court Martial or in Shore Leave, uh, they're all Ball. interesting. Well, yeah. Ruth. Yeah. How about See, this I knew one? you know all the names. Oh, Ruth, I thought was super boring and I didn't really understand that one. But 
how about let's talk about McCoy and Natira for a second. Oh, because yeah, they fell in love very quickly, but they had something going. They yeah. had, I bought it. They had a connection. He was in a certain place in his life where he thought he was dying. She was the leader of her people and proved to be an amazing leader and a very thoughtful person exactly. who was able to think beyond the limits that were imposed on her. And so that connection, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. I totally buy it. But these two, as I said, and as we keep saying, they never even ever had a conversation he never asked her what she thought about anything yes i agree yep you're right i mean at least like like what kind of movies do you like do you like yep. chinese food you know that kind yep. of stuff is like what you should talk about but and and flint who we said is has twice his strength and his six thousand years of battle experience now attacks just totally loses it and attacks kirk it just, and they have a terrible, terrible fight. They have a terrible it's fight. Flint's a train cape keeps getting in the way. Like he has this very long cape and he has to keep flinging no it capes. out of the way. No capes. <laughs> I want capes. <laughs> I cannot be the cause of this. I will not be the cause of this. And Spock and McCoy are just watching. Stop. I choose where I want to go. What I want to do. And you can see she's going through a lot. And what's funny is it's very much what Mira Romaine is saying in Lights of Zatar, where she's saying, no, I choose. It's my life. I choose who I want to be. Yep, sure. And so in this weird way, I think when they made this, they thought of this as this is like a feminist story because it's all about the woman taking ownership of her life and saying that I get to choose my own destiny. But structurally, it's kind of the opposite of that story, you know? <laughs> yes. Raina. No, do not order me. No one can order me. And then, <laughs> again, just to prove this point, is then Kirk has the longest monologue. She's human. Down to the last blood cell, she's human. Down to the last thought, hope, aspiration, emotion, she's human. We're all just talking about her. He's also not even looking at her. You have no power of ownership. She's free to do as she wishes. Gentlemen, I urge you to stop. There is a danger. Because Spock's looking at her. <laughs> well, and it also it also Spock's reminds me of, looking uh, at her. <laughs> of like Willy Wonka going, no, don't, yeah. stop. <laughs> uh, and, and Flint then says, no man beats me. <sighs> and then again, it's between the two of them. All this love crap is really between the two of them posturing and has nothing to do with yep. her at all because also flint could just make another one yeah that's right very true <laughs> i don't know why he kept all the old ones but he did so he could probably use some parts and make a new one well i also said this is a totally dumb thought but like so he kept all the old ones and then kirk has just said that she's human down to the last you know blood cell it's like does she have blood cells? And if so, are the dead bodies in the other room kind of stinky? Like, yeah. <laughs> like what point. are they made out of that they've just been sitting there forever? And she claims the human right of choice to be as she wills, to do as she wills, to think as she wills. And then both of them try to order her around. Yep, exactly. Come with me. Stay. I... Was not human. No, I love. And she looks to Kirk. I love. She goes down. Uh, 
I feel like Michael Scott does this on The Office. There's an episode. Oh, yeah. Carruthers, where I learned how to love and then acts <laughs> like he's dying. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, we joked for this whole show about McCoy's terrible doctoring. This one was, I think it might be the worst. Yeah. Where he just goes over there, touches her neck and goes, yeah, no, nope, she's dead. Well, he checks for a pulse. <laughs> she's an android and he checks for a pulse. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> well, and like Flint built her. Yeah. You know, like maybe he might know how to do something. There was not enough time for her to adjust to the awful power and contradictions of her newfound emotions. The joys of love made her human, and the agonies of love destroyed her. Deep stuff, guys. Deep stuff. Deep stuff. stuff. Except she never looked joyful, and she didn't really look that agonized. She had that same deer-in-the-headlights look on her face the entire (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I, I just never for a minute thought anything that Kirk was feeling for her. None of it. There's a weird thing that happens in acting, and I think it definitely happens with Shatner. And Senna is like, okay, I'm not buying it. Therefore, do more of it. You know, yes. therefore, be more intense, more emotional, and then maybe we'll buy it. It's like, no, because this, it's not structurally set up for me to buy it. The more emotional you get, the less I buy it. Right. It actually ends up having the opposite effect. It's something Leonard Nimoy was really, really good at. Yes. We're back on the Enterprise. We're in Kirk's quarters. He's looking sad. Hey, the, guess what, guys? Epidemic's all fixed. So good job there. And Kirk says, Very old and lonely man. And a young and lonely man. We put on a pretty poor show, didn't we? Only I could forget. He puts his head down on his arms and apparently instantly falls <laughs> deeply, <laughs> deeply asleep. And no matter what else happens in that room, he is sound asleep. He's out, out. Right over his head. Yep. <laughs> and McCoy comes in and, you know, and goes, oh, thank heaven, sleeping at last. Because you could just look and tell that he was asleep. And what we find out is that it ends up that Flint is finally dying because he left Earth and that he's going to devote his life to the betterment of humankind, which seems great. And they're just talking with the Kirk asleep three know, feet away so from them. Um, <laughs> And then this moment, this moment is so weird. And it's, we've talked a few times of where McCoy's ribbing of Spock or conflicts with Spock just become him being just a complete jerk. Yeah, like right now. You see, I feel sorry for you than I do for him because you'll never know the things that love can drive a man to. The ecstasies, the miseries, the broken rules, the desperate chances, the glorious failures, the glorious victories. All of these things you'll never know, simply because the word love isn't written into your book. He forgot about Spock hanging from a tree. McCoy obviously forgot what happened on Omicron City 3 when this side of paradise, <laughs> when for the first time in his life, he was happy. Uh, it's terrible. It's just me. It's mean for no reason to be mean at this moment. Oh, while your best friend is sitting asleep three feet away from you. But then they say goodnight, and McCoy, as he's leaving, says what Kirk said when he put his head in his arms. He says, I do wish he could forget her. And Spock's alone with Kirk. He slowly walks forward, puts his hand on his face. The camera pushes in, and Spock says, forget. First of all, so presumptuous. Like, super invasive of Spock to decide to do that. So if I look at it as isolated. I just go, it was a really weird choice for Spock. It was very presumptuous. He shouldn't have done it. Who knows how much, what did he remove? Just the love, the whole event. Every We know it wasn't the whole event because 
uh, Janeway actually talks about Kirk having met Da Vinci. So he obviously does tell people mm-hmm. about this at some point. But Wait, if I so try... Kirk break, broke his promise and told He did, because she says Kirk says he met Da Vinci. There's an episode wow. where she says that. But, well, because Flint's dying anyway, so I guess that makes it okay. But if you try to, if you want to string it together the way that you guys do and sort of try to create some sense of why Spock makes this very, very bad choice, then you could say what McCoy said to Spock could have reminded him of the guilt that he felt when he cured Layla of the spores and himself of the spores. And he saw how Kirk was devastated after Edith Keeler. And so maybe in some way he's putting all these things together and thinking, yeah, we. I, I can spare him this, uh, but I, honestly, it doesn't. It's not. An, it's not an okay thing to do. I, I think uh, when I was doing my rewatch, and Spock makes this choice, especially after McCoy is just told him, "You'll never know. You'll never understand that." I think that Spock thought of definitely the side of paradise his own feelings of when he actually was able to feel love and be happy for the first time. And definitely because of the anguish that he felt when they came back through the guardian of forever. Yeah. And he said, let's get the hell out of here. Um, that was a devastating decision that, you know, uh, it, it was devastating to Kirk to have to be forced to make that decision. And, you know, I think Spock's heart, was in the right place, even though it's a little lower than ours. But yeah, I don't know if I agree with, I, I agree. I, I think it was a nice gesture, but not the right decision. I think it is totally one of those things that they went, oh, this would be an interesting thing to do. And they didn't really think through it. Cause I think it's, I, I agree uh, with both of you. I think this is, I don't know where there is a, the the handbook of what, what it's okay to do with Vulcan mind melds on Vulcan, but there's got, there's gotta be a rule book. And without consent, going up to someone and erasing a piece of their memories, that seems like a seriously break in the rules, first of all. Second of all, again, I go to this, you know, it's a disservice to the other loves of his life that I took much. He didn't ask to forget Edith Keeler, you know, like he was going to live with that memory. And I think, you know, going to Star Trek V, but I think this moment of Star Trek V is really connected to a lot of the original series, which is I need my pain. Right. Is that yes. that is a that is a central element to Kirk's philosophy is that the hard stuff in life, whether it's the speech at the end of this side of paradise, that the hard stuff, the struggles, that's what makes you who you are. And Captain Kirk is a guy who's done the right thing over and over again, despite the fact that it hurt him personally. And so this moment, it just is wrong in every single possible way, I think. I agree. Agree 100%. Everything has that same feeling, which is we want to do this, like the writers and producers. Here's what we want to do. And we will fit everything in in a way that doesn't work to get to that thing we want. Instead of saying, oh, you know what? This doesn't really work. Let's figure something else out. They just go, we'll just say this. We'll just have him do this. Because it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. We know that the, the two-hour love affair isn't big enough to warrant even a conversation about doing this. I, I agree. I mean, I, I just feel like the the... Um, you know, not watching this episode in a really, really long time. You know, when I've when I've gone back to do a rewatch in episodes that I haven't seen in a while, you know, there are some that I really, really liked a whole lot more, especially after 
after our conversation, Steve, like like uh, Return of the Archons and Miri and the Deadly Years. I mean, I like those episodes anyway. But this one, I thought, well, maybe. I mean, it's really been the longest time, and if anything, because I have a much more critical eye on things, especially after doing this podcast, uh, it just it was so glaring just how how there are so many swings in this episode that the mighty Casey struck out. Do we have other uh, quotes from some of the people that worked on the show? Well, we did read one already from Louis Sorrell, but Jerome Bixby, who wrote the episode, said, I always wanted to do a story about a Neanderthal who found himself gifted with immortality, who lived up through the present day, learning, learning, learning through his enormous lifetime, mastering the arts and sciences through philosophy. I was very much pleased with it when I first wrote it. But he did write it after that. Didn't he? Wasn't like his final work had uh, to do that with was like his last uh, of his his fourth of four Star Trek episodes. No, I mean post Star Trek. He what wrote, did he do? He wrote oh the the man the the last man on Earth or something. Yeah, like that, but it or, was like a the similar. It was the same kind of flinty sort of premise. Yeah, that's right. He did write uh, uh the te- it was a movie a TV movie or something. something I forget the name of it, but it was a similar sort of thing about yep. you know a flint type of character. But Steve, what are your final thoughts or were those your final thoughts? So when I was in film school, one of my teachers was uh, Chuck Rosen, Charles Rosen, who was the uh, showrunner on Beverly Hills 90210 back in its heyday. And Chuck said a thing and it is like, I, I should have it in a plaque in front of my computer at all times, which is execution is everything. Is that people tend to think that here is this amazing idea and you're like, oh my God, that'll be a great movie. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Amazing ideas are a dime of dozen. And there are a bunch of great ideas in this episode. Execution, how do you do it? Every line, every camera angle, every bit of performance, every bit of music and sound design, that's what's going to make the things good. The idea doesn't matter. And so the fact that we're dealing with sentience and androids and emotion and immortality and art and all of these and true love and all these things, those are great, great elements to make a great show. But it's the writing and the acting and the directing and the editing and the cinematography. And that's actually what will make it a good show. And that good stuff does not exist in this episode. It's so funny because I made a note about the things I remembered most strongly about this episode from my childhood and why I did used to like it. Um, and the, the I wrote four, four things down. One was, I am Brahms, because I always loved that line. One was Spock figuring things out, because I enjoyed all the moments where Spock was like, look at this, this is crazy. Um, the room with the bald Rainas always stuck out to me, and I thought was cool. And Flint's cape was the fourth thing that I wrote down. <laughs> but you could have, if you you could keep those four things, including the cape, and have a great episode. And they didn't. It's everything that you just said. It's every, the the dialogue isn't good for the most part, a few a few exceptions. The directing isn't good. The choices aren't good. The story isn't good. The pacing isn't good. Everything. It all is just poorly executed with these great ideas that were used again in Star Trek, that have been used in Star Trek more than once and in sci-fi more than once because they're intriguing. Well, I'm really curious as to what people listening think of that final moment when Spock gives Kirk the mind meld and says, forget. So for everyone listening, do you think that Spock made the right choice 
Do you agree? Do you support? Do you think it was like uh, the, the, the right thing to do, a nice thing to do? Do you have issues with it? Uh, do you think it's one of the one of the finer moments of their friendship? Let us know. Go to our Facebook page and, and let us know what you think, what you thought of Spock's final decision to have Kirk forget. Uh, but otherwise, uh, Laurie, thank you for joining us again on Enterprise Incidents. And especially this one, uh, thank you for your insight and your knowledge and for making the time to rejoin us again before we uh, you know, are about to wrap up the original series. But where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm on dying Twitter. <laughs> so sad. I love yeah. Twitter. I love Twitter. So I'm still there. I'm Flubish, um, F-L-O-O-B-I-S-H on Twitter and Instagram. I'm sort of playing around on on Mastodon, but I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. And I can always be found at Trek Movie. Trek Movie. Yes, you should be absolutely following Trek Movie anyway. <laughs> if people want to find us, they can do a search for Enterprise Incidents on Facebook. We're Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And of course, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. You could support the show through Anchor by just going to the show notes and clicking right there. Just think of it as a tip jar. And as for me, you can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was thinking about how things that might exist in my other podcast, the cinephiles that relate to the show. I already mentioned one of them. And that, of course, is Highlander. He said he was Merlin. And we did both Excalibur and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> so we get to see Flint in both of those episodes. And I was thinking about immortal characters who are looking for true love. And you know what I came up with? What's Big that? Trouble in Little China. So Big those job. are episodes of the cinephiles that vaguely relate to Requiem for the Methuselah. Scott, how would people reach you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Twitter for, for the time being anyway, at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, make sure you go to our description on the, uh, on the various platforms where you can listen to Enterprise Incidents and support us. Support uh, Enterprise Incidents. You can do it for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. We are grateful for your support. Make sure you follow us on Facebook. Our, our Facebook page is Enterprise Incidents, and that's where you will be the first to learn about news, about the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, and so on, and also anniversaries of past episodes that we've done, like we just uh, posted today, that Today was the 55th anniversary of Metamorphosis, and make sure you listen to that one. And uh, make sure you do listen to our past episodes of Enterprise Incidents if you have not yet heard us. And maybe you've been wanting to leave a review of Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts, but maybe you haven't had the time, or maybe you're going to do it and you got sidetracked. Well, we have just three more episodes to go on the original series. So if you are going to leave a review of Enterprise Incidents, Make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave that review now, let us know what you think. I cannot believe we have only three episodes to go. And then there were three. Up next on Enterprise Incidents, we are going to the Savage Curtain. Savage Curtain is the next voyage on Enterprise Incidents. Join us, and until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.